Several times, or a couple times at least this morning, it's been mentioned that this is Race Relations Sunday. And you may say, what in the world are they doing, you know, having something called Race Relations Sunday? I, I just want to tell you, since 2004, in January 2004, every year, whether you realize it or not early on, I don't think I made it quite as clear back then because I, I didn't realize I would need to. Um, there has been an emphasis around Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday. The, the nation marks the, uh, the civil rights movement in this nation and the struggle and the blood that was shed and the animosity that had to be overcome for there to be unity, um, quote-unquote unity, in our world politically, uh, relationally, socially, economically, uh, educational opportunity had to be opened up, and there was a great struggle. Many of you know that, and I don't have to recount all of that history for you to think about that. And so what we've done is we've taken a little different focus each year to call us as the church of God to lead, to continue to lead, or to begin to lead maybe for some of us in this area of bringing people together across all barriers, particularly racial barriers. I want to tell you, I think one of the greatest lies that has ever been disseminated among the people of the world is that there are literal barriers between groups of people based on skin color. Nathan uh, Boatwright and I were having uh, lunch together on Friday and we talked about this very thing. How silly, how juvenile, how elementary it is to think that because a person has a different colored skin they are a different type of person. We speak of it like species. Like, bear with me, you've heard this analogy, I'm sure. You know, birds of a feather flock together. I've said that before on this Sunday. That, that was one of the main statements made by the leaders of segregationist movement was that birds of a feather flock together. Blue birds stay together and red birds stay together. The problem with that analogy is those are different species of a bird. Humans are not made like that. Biologically, humans are one. We descend from one father. Adam originally, Noah after the flood. We all come from the same place. But one of the great lies that has been sold to the world is well, those people just aren't like us. So those groups should stay together and our groups should stay together. I believe it's one of the greatest lies because it's one of the great barriers to the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And I want to make that clear this morning. I want to take a little different approach uh, this, to this year than I have in the past. Um, and I'm sure I'll get in no less trouble with some of you. That's okay. And we'll have just as many talks about it, I'm certain. Because there's a very radical message that I'm hoping to convey to you this morning. Whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian in our congregation today. I want you to know that one of the greatest barriers to the gospel reaching the nations is racism. It's the belief that our culture is greater than those cultures. That because our culture has received the gospel, 
we're somehow privileged in the plan of God and we don't then turn and give that gospel to the nations. It began earlier than our nation, so I want to start back um, a good ways. The title of the sermon is Other Sheep, One Flock, John 10, 16. Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There are many barriers to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm not so silly as to believe there's like one kryptonite passage where we can just say, that's what keeps us from going. But I do want to bring out an emphasis today on one particular uh, barrier that I believe exists, and that is the barrier of, of what we perceive as race. I think it's a perception. I don't believe in race. I do not believe, I believe there is a human race, one, singular. And it's a, it's a lie to see it any other way, I believe. There are groups, there are ethnos in the world, there are people groups, but there are not races of people. It's humankind. And this is one of the great barriers to the gospel going to all the peoples of the earth. Christ gave his life almost 2,000 years ago so that all of his people of the world might be saved. Before and after his death, Jesus pressed his disciples to take the message of God's gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me give you an example. If you hold your place in John, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We see one example prior to Jesus' death of him pressing his disciples to take the message of the gospel, the message of God's gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, I, I, I'm going to a very uh, debated passage, all right? So I want to tell you where I'm coming from, and I understand it. May, we may have various beliefs about this passage. Jesus, near the end of his life, with his disciples exiting the temple, looks at the temple itself and says... Not one stone will be left upon another, but all will be thrown down. Okay? They, they were getting Jesus to look at the magnificence of the temple and how wonderful it was, and they're taking great ethnic pride in it, great, great pride as Jews that look at a house that we have built for God. And Jesus says to them, all of these things will be torn down. Not one stone will be left stacked on another. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives across from the Temple Mount, looking at the temple still, they could still see it, it's there. The disciples asked him two very distinct questions. Look at the passage in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the end of the age? Now, I believe this is two distinct questions. The first question, tell us when these things will be, is referring to the temple being destroyed. That seems obvious to me in context, doesn't it? Tell us when this is going to happen. I mean, you got to put yourself in the disciples' place as Jews in Jerusalem looking at the magnificence of the temple and the fact that that's the, in their mind, that's the house of God. That's where God dwells. That's the center of their whole world. And they believed the center of God's world. They believed that very building was where Jesus, or the Messiah, not Jesus, but the Messiah, would come and reign. 
from that place. And so when Jesus says this whole place is going to be leveled, it rocked their world. Their whole view of the world, their whole worldview was turned upside down. So they say, tell us when this will happen. And then, tell us what the sign of your coming is. Two questions. Now, Jesus sets out to answer these questions in order. He starts out in verse 4 telling them about what will happen before the temple is destroyed. He says, many will come in my, in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. We're not talking about the end of the time-space continuum. We're talking about the time before the temple is destroyed. That's what we're talking about. See that you're not alarmed for the end, this, the end is not yet. The nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations by, for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He's still answering the first question. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole cosmos world as a testimony to all nations, ethne, ethnos, ethne, groups of people, people groups, and then the end will come. When Jesus makes this statement, I believe he's pressing his disciples to go beyond the Jewish world and share the gospel. I think I know that because they responded to this call by taking the gospel to the known world of their day. Now turn to Colossians 1. So this can be biblically proven to you, I think. This can be biblically put beyond doubt. That this is what that text is talking about. That text is not talking about the end of the world. That text is talking about the end of Judaism. The end of the world that they knew. The end of the way people thought of the temple as the center of all the cosmos. When that is destroyed, when's that going to happen, Jesus? Well, there's going to be false prophets. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be great destruction. There's going to be temptation to fall away from the faith. But endure to the end. And while you're enduring, take the gospel to all the nations. Colossians 1, verse 21. Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Look at this which has been proclaimed in all creation or to all creatures under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
What Paul is saying is not that the Chinese and the Native Americans heard the gospel. What he's saying is all of the known world of their day, the Roman Empire, has received the gospel. In a sense, Paul believed the words of Matthew 24 were coming true. They were were happening right now. And the reason he's reminding both the Gentiles who have become Christians and the Jews who are Christians of that very fact is because Jesus said what he did in Matthew 24. One of Paul's great concerns as you read it with, with, with the biblical mindset about the, the, through the epistles of Paul, one of the great urgent desires he has is that people understand that the age as we know it is about to change. The age as they understood it is about to be destroyed. But don't lose heart. Don't give up your faith. Don't walk away. It's not going to go like you think it is. But that's okay. God has a plan. And that's just a a continuation of that in Colossians 1. In Romans, of the Romans, he said, "The, the knowledge of you being in the gospel has spread and bearing fruit all over the world. I mean, this, this was Paul's mindset. Why? Because Matthew 24, Jesus said, before the temple is destroyed, the gospel will go to all the known world. And it will be preached among all the nations of the known world. But there's, that's before Christ's death. After Christ's death, burial, resurrection, in Matthew 28, we have another pressing of Jesus. And I want us to look there. Because this one, while I don't think Matthew 24 is necessarily speaking to us, but was rather to the disciples in Jesus' day, Matthew 28 most assuredly speaks directly to us. He commissions his disciples and through them the entire church of all ages to do something. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all ethne, all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That speaks to the unity that they have in the one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Spirit. I'm going to bring them together in one flock. But you go out and make disciples of them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you until the end of the age, until the end of the world. So we have Jesus before his death and after his death pressing his disciples to go beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea and Israel and preach the gospel to the nations. Preach the gospel to the nations. Paul was obedient. My question is, are we being obedient? Paul and the apostles did what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24. And in 70 AD, the temple was absolutely razed, burned, and destroyed. The end of their age happened. And the gospel had gone to all of the known world. But it had not gone into every corner of the world. Matthew 28 is not complete. And my question to us this morning is, are we being obedient to what he called us to do the way they were obedient to what he called them to do in their day? And then to say, I think one reason we're not is we, at our hearts, still struggle with the insidious belief that our culture is okay, so everything is okay. We got the gospel, our forefathers believed the gospel, so all's well that ends well. And I want to challenge us as a church to look beyond and go further. 
in this. The gospel message of salvation is not just for the Jews, but it is for all men, Jew and Gentile. After his death and resurrection, Jesus gave us the command to take the gospel to the people groups of the earth. And I want to tell you, we now know, and I've said this before, I will say it again, the shock value should never wear off. Almost 2,000 years later, of the 11,000 people groups in the world that we know of that fit Jesus' description of ethne. Language, culture, separate from others. 11,000 people groups. 7,272 of those people groups are unreached or unengaged with the gospel. 11,000 and 2,000 years later, 7,272 of them are unengaged at the moment. They have no church or they have no Christian that we know of. That batting percentage wouldn't get you in the major leagues as a baseball player. If you were a field goal kicker, my friends, the NFL would do away with you if you couldn't kick at a better percentage than what we're kicking at with the gospel. Three, over three billion people this morning, right now, at this second, have no gospel to believe in. And they are dying every single day. And the insidious lie that we are separated by race, even separated by language, continues to keep us from going to those places. My heart has just been in a turmoil over the last month because I've been just filling myself with the Scripture and with testimonies from around the world. And I just want to share them with you because they've challenged me. I want to share with you so they challenge you. There was a missionary who went into China in 1998. His goal was to meet with church leaders, underground house church leaders, illegal Christians in the nation of China. The communists had taken over fully 50 years prior to his coming to the nation. In that 50 years, prior to 1948, when Mao began his revolution of of change in, in China, prior to that, People had come from other nations, primarily people like Lottie Moon and Hudson Taylor from this nation and England had gone over and shared the gospel with the people of China. Fifty-four known nations inside the people of China. Hundreds of people groups on a a nation as big, almost as big as ours on the map, okay? We had sent missionaries. There were a little over, estimated, a little over 300,000 Christians in China in 1948. A little over. Fifty years later, when this American missionary went into China and began to meet with underground church leaders, under suffering and persecution, no one from the outside coming to them, those Christians that were persecuted had multiplied into millions. He met at a conference with 170 church house church leaders. In this conference, he had to go 18 hours in a bus, hidden from the authorities to get to them. And they were in this little farmhouse in the courtyard, 170, waiting on him to teach them. 
They're, they're raising up disciples and planting churches. They want this American to teach them because they've never been to seminary. They barely read the Bible. Some of them didn't even have whole copies of the Bible. Some of them had started churches with one book of the Bible in their language. One book. That's all they had. They just kept preaching it over and over and over and people would get saved and they'd send them out and they'd start another house church. And he said, how many people are in your church movement? Just your group. With these 170, they quickly told him, we believe there are 10 million Christians in our house church movement alone. Spirit of God under persecution, the communist rule had spread like wildfire the church of God inside of China. During his training, this missionary began to tell about the persecution other Christians were facing in other parts of the world, particularly the Muslim world. And one of the church leaders raises that old man, raises his hand, and through a translator asked, He said, do you mean they're dying for the gospel? And he said, yes. In this country, it's illegal to be a Christian. And I know personally people who have been killed, beheaded for the gospel. Well, they ended the night. He went to bed. He said the next morning he was woke and what he thought was secret guards coming in to take over because there's so much commotion. He burst out of his room and in the courtyard are these 170 church leaders wailing throwing dirt into the air, pulling their hair out. He's amazed. He went to his guy, David Chan, and said, what's going on? What's happened? He thought, you know, somebody's died. I've said something that offended them. What something's happened? He said, just be quiet and listen. He said, I began to walk among these 170 church members, writhing on the ground as if they were in pain. And every now and then I would hear that country's name that I had told them people were dying. And I went back to my God and said, are they praying for those people? He said, oh, yes. When you told them they were so cut to the heart that they had had so much pride about the gospel coming to their people. And here this country was, people dying for the faith. And they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. They have committed to rise every morning before daylight and pray that God saves people in that nation. Racism doesn't just exist in the United States. Sadly, it has divided the world, the whole world. Those Chinese church leaders were cut by the fact that they were so focused on their own lives. And listen, we might give them a pass, right? They were going to prison for their faith. They were being beaten. They were losing their homes, their wives, their children. Maybe they should have focused on themselves. But when they heard other people are suffering and we didn't even know it, They were cut to the heart. They were repenting. And they were pleading with God to do a great work among those people. Why am I talking about this idea on a day like today? A day like racial diversity, race relations Sunday. I believe that this key has to be unlocked in a sense. This door has to be unlocked. And we have to repent of our own barrier that we have in our own heart. And I'm as guilty as you are. That we don't value the nations of the world. We don't think about them and we don't pray for them and we're not going to them. We're content because our families have the gospel. Our community has the gospel. Our nation has the gospel, so we're content. And we can never be content with this. We should be engaging across cultural lines to see the gospel proclaimed until the end of the age. 
So what cures this horrific disease that I've mentioned, this racist thought that lies inside of our own hearts? Well, that's why I'm in John 10, verse 16. One verse. We've built the background a little bit. I could go on and on. I could go to Genesis 11, where I've been with my children this past week, talking about the Table of Nations, the Tower of Babel. We could go there. We could go to many places in Scripture. But I, I think these words say all that need to be said. First of all, in John 10, verse 16, Jesus has sheep that are in the other folds of the world. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. They're not of this fold. Where are they, Jesus? They're in other folds, is what he would say. In in this terminology, in this parable, in this talking, this teaching, Jesus is telling the people, the Jewish people that he's preaching to, listen, I'm the good shepherd. What do you think they thought of? Psalm 23, right? And they applied that to the Jews. They said, Yes, you're the good shepherd of the Jews. And in verse 16, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. In fact, if we're thinking about the Israel, uh, uh, the Israeli nation being a fold, we could say the people groups of the world are all folds, in a sense. A fold is like a, a place to hold sheep. It has barriers. But what Jesus is saying is, I have sheep in those other fences, pens, folds. I have sheep out there. Jesus isn't saying, I might have, I could have. He's saying, I do have sheep. First of all, the Jews of Jesus' day were ignorant of God's plan to save the nations. Not because God hadn't told them He desired to save the nations, but because they refused to hear it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the very foundation promise of their society their forefather Abraham had been promised by God that he would make him a great nation look what it says in Genesis 12 verse 1 go from your country Abram and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation the Jews beamed with pride over that verse oh yes we are a great nation We're a great sheepfold. There are many sheep inside here that belong to God. And what Jesus is saying in John 10 is I have sheep in other folds too. Not just in Israel, but in other places. They had taken the very promise of God in Genesis 12 and made it a cultural pride point to say our fold is better than their fold. God loves us. He doesn't love them. And I will, but look at what he continues to say here. God says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What? You're going to be a blessing, Abram. A, A blessing to who? I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They forgot the last half of that promise. The Jews in Jesus' day focused on we're a great nation because our father Abraham had faith in God. And so God made him a great nation and we are it. And what God had said on the second half of the promise was you will be a blessing to all the nations. How? Through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham in the house of Israel. And he would take the promise of God, not just to Israel, he would begin in Israel, and then he would send it to the whole world. 
the Jews didn't have that view. They didn't have that philosophy. They were very ethnocentric. They were very much centered on their nation being the great nation. And Jesus was saying, I'm the great God. And I have sheep that are not Jewish. I have sheep. Not I might. It's a possibility. There could be. I have sheep that are not in this fold. It's a definite statement in verse 16. Secondly, in this point, we see that Jesus said he has sheep in other folds. I have sheep in other folds. They're not in this fold. Secondly, in John 10, 16, we see Jesus will bring them like he brought the Jews. Jesus will bring these other sheep the same way he brought the Jews that were his sheep. Look what it says. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I must bring them. It's imperative that they come. How will they come? They will hear my voice. And they will come. (laughs) Acts 10 is an example. Jesus' disciples did this after he was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. Peter in Acts chapter 10, the very ethnocentric Peter, who was proud of being a Hebrew, had a vision. And the vision was of a sheet that had all types of clean and unclean animals on it. And it came down out of the sky. And he refused the food that was represented there because it was unclean. Three times this happened. And on the third time, he was rebuked in the vision. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. And from this, he understood he was to go to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. And so he does. He goes to Cornelius. Cornelius had been already pricked in the heart with the message that God had a great plan. And he didn't know what the plan was. And so when Peter came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles just as it had fallen on the Jews. And the church began to expand beyond the borders of Israel to the whole world. God took the most, excuse this, but understand it. God took one of the most racist disciples captured his mind with the gospel and sent him to the Gentiles. He was the most closed-minded. Jesus had already taught this. In Mark 7, Jesus had already told them, don't declare things unclean when I've said they're clean. He had already taught this lesson. He had already exemplified it for them in his own life. And Peter was still only going to Jews. And Jesus said, don't do that. Go to the Gentiles. And he went and they were saved. Miraculously, powerfully saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Just as the Jews were. The Jesus has sheep from the other folds of the world. Not just Israel. And aren't we glad that he does? Because I don't know anybody in here that would fit in the fold of Israel. We might have somebody, but I don't know them. You've never shared with me that you're Jewish. Aren't you glad the gospel wasn't just about one race of people or one ethnic group of people, but was about all of the peoples of the world? Jesus exemplified this in his own life. In John chapter 4, he's traveling and he takes his men and he says, I must, this is the way it reads, I must 
need go to Samaria. The same kind of verbiage here. They must come, these sheep of the other fold. How do we know how imperative it is? Jesus said, I have a great need, and that need is to go into Samaria. And what did he do in Samaria? He found a woman who was outcast and in sin, and he saved her by the power of his gospel message. And he saved a non-Jew, a half-breed, a Jew and a Gentile mix. He saved them. Jesus exemplified this diversity in his own ministry and his men displayed this diversity in their ministry and we should display it in our ministry. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, he was a prisoner of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. He said, My call, verse 6, is to take the mystery. This mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul understood that Jesus has sheep from the other sheepfolds, not just Jews. Jesus has sheep in other folds of the world, Jesus will save those sheep that are in the other folds of the world. Third, Jesus promises unity in His flock. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and look what He says, and they will hear My voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus knows nothing of a Jewish-centered gospel where Gentiles are simply second class. Jesus knows a gospel that takes men from every tribe and tongue and nation and makes them one flock with one great head or leader, and His name is Jesus. In Revelation 5, which Aaron talked about, we see no division among the people. There's not a Jewish corner and an American corner, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, a, an African corner. There's just a tribe of people from every tribe and every tongue and every people. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul strives to tell them, God has torn down the barrier that was in the flesh by His flesh, Jesus' flesh on the cross. And now He is bringing a group of people together. No longer recognizing the divisions of the past, He's bringing people together. He's making a new way. A new way. There's no longer to be thought of, there's no longer two categories, Jew and Gentile, but there's Jew, Gentile, and now a third Christian. What keys me to the fact that what's preventing us in some ways from going to the nations, what keys me that this is a racist thing in part is that the greatest pride and the greatest label that we champion is the label of our ethnic group. We are more proud of who we are in the flesh than we are in who we are in Christ. We don't identify as Christians. We identify as some group. We have other labels. We do it even in the church, don't we? And we just mimic the world. 
People call themselves by all these different ethnic group labels. We do it in the church. We tell you, I'm Baptist. I'm Methodist. I'm Presbyterian. I'm this. I'm Calvinist. I'm Arminian. And there's all these labels, right? There's some need for that, but listen to me. Wouldn't it be nice if people just said, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. The unity that's found there is greater than the diversity that separates us. The unity that's found in Christ brings us together much more than the thing, the barriers that we've made separate us. Jesus has one fold, one flock, one shepherd. And our mission, our aim, our goal is to go out and be His voice among these peoples. So what is the application? We, as Grace Fellowship, what are we going to do? Well, first of all, we must labor for the lost in our own community. We must labor for the lost in our own community. You all live in a neighborhood. That neighborhood should be attacked with the gospel by your home. Viewing our homes as outposts of the gospel in our neighborhoods, we should begin to share the gospel with our neighbors, with those who live nearest to us. Because here's the truth, we won't do it over there until we do it here. Students, you live in a dorm? Attack that dorm with the gospel. Make your room the post of the gospel in that building. And say, I'm going to share the gospel this semester with everybody in this, in this building. I'm going to share, or that's too big a goal, I'm going to share it with everybody in my wing of the, of the hall. I'm going to share it on my floor with everybody. And then use your room like a home base for that. Invite them to eat a snack in your room. Invite them to watch a movie in your room. And then build a relationship and share the gospel. Stop being divided. Stop living a singular existence as if other people don't exist. That's an application for us from John 10, verse 16. Adults and us who own homes, God's blessed us with a home. Whether you rent it or you own it. Let's use those as little mission bases in our own place of life. That's the first application for this sermon. Jesus has sheep in Pebble Creek. And I'm His voice there. So are people being saved or not? Secondly, Grace Fellowship must strive for greater diversity in our own local congregation. We've made strides in this area, but we don't ever need to stop making strides. We need to not only share the gospel among the people in our neighborhoods and in the places where we work, but we need to share the gospel across all barriers, including the racial or ethnic barrier. Now, some of us, we struggle with opportunities for that, okay? I admit, that's, that's one of the biggest struggles. So, I think we're, I'm, I'm going to just lay this out. It's not a definite, but, but something to kind of pique your interest. If you're interested after I say this, come see me sometime. And we'll talk about it. The housing authority in Anniston has talked to us about providing after-school help Tuesdays and Thursdays in Glen Addy for first through fifth graders. About an hour and a half. They want us to feed them a snack, do some Bible study with them, do some fun songs and activities, and then uh, then, uh, tutor them in their homework. All of those children are black. You say, I don't know any black people. Okay, well, here's an opportunity for you to get to know some. Now, I want to just tell you something. Why? There's, there's oh, 
fully over 400 churches in this county. I asked them on my way out. I said, are there any other churches you've approached about this opportunity? No. Be honest with you, nobody's ever showed any interest in this place. But we know you care, and we know your congregation cares, and so we wanted to ask you to come. There's a responsibility with that. There's a responsibility. There's an opportunity, and there's a responsibility to take that opportunity. First through fifth graders, struggling in their homework, and we can share the gospel with them. And through it, God may be pleased to grow the diversity of our church, to tear down barriers among us. Wouldn't it be fabulous if next year there were two or three children from Glen Addy worshiping here, came with different families, and they were worshiping, or their moms were here? Wouldn't that be awesome? I'm telling you, the gospel does that. Politics can't unify. The schemes and plans of this world will always fail, but the gospel will succeed. And we have an open door. I, t- I tell you, it's kind of like when Paul, I, I'm not Paul, but I kind of felt like Paul sitting in that room. Like when the Macedonian in the vision is crying, come to us. Come help us. I thought, somewhat similar, isn't it? God is arranging an opportunity. Now let's capitalize and then expand it from there. I mean, before I left, they were sharing visions and ideas that they have, whether they come true or not, that they would trust me and share them with me because of you. They were doing it because you showed compassion to that neighborhood. I thought, what a blessing. What an opportunity. We need to strive for gospel diversity in our own place here at Grace Fellowship. And we need to strive for it in our own community. And third and finally, the application, there may be others, but these three I emphasize Grace Fellowship must develop a heart for the people of the ethne, the people of the people groups around the world. 7,272 unreached, unengaged groups. Three billion people. Have we prayed for them? When's the last time we prayed for them? As individuals, as a church. When's the last time you intentionally sat down as the leader of your home and said, we're going to take this percentage of our income this year and we're going to give it to to every tribe or some other approved group that's reaching these unreached peoples. We're going to give our money there because we want to see them reached. And we're going to go, hopefully we're going to go to them. I offered it last week. I offered it again. Some of us are planning to go to South Texas to the Two Every Tribe training facility and to see how our missionaries are being trained to go to these lost groups of the world. You're welcome to come. It's, it's, it's a Friday night through Sunday night trip. It costs you very little. Won't you come and just see what they're doing? You say, well, I've never felt called to go. That's okay. Go see what they're doing so you can pray better, so you can give better, so you can encourage others better. You may get down there and find, that's where I need to be. That's what I need to be giving my life to. But even if not, you'll be better prepared to care for them here. You know, Rod Connor is coming on January 26th. He's coming to speak with us and to eat lunch with us and share their ministry with us. And I'm just amazed, really, at what God's doing around the world 
I told somebody this last week. I really do believe over the last month I've begun, become convinced that we're living in an age that I really believe worldwide we're going to see another great awakening. It's probably already started, and we just have been ignorant to it. But if it's not started yet, I believe it's coming. God's Spirit is at work in the nations of this world to save them. One, one testimony of that, to show you how powerful and how much God wants these people, His people. Southeast Asian country, can't mention it by name because of the oppression there. There was a doctor, a Western doctor, in the country. And he's calling another missionary and saying, would you come to our nation? Persecution has risen. People are dying, going to prison. We need your help. The missionary turned him down because he had other plans. This went on for two months. Every time the guy would email him, the missionary would email back, I'm not coming. Finally, he told him, stop emailing me. I'm not coming. Well, he had plans to go to another nation from Thailand where he was. He was going to go to another nation. He got to Bangkok's airport and he got a phone call. There's no need to come to our nation. Why? All 17 of our church leaders have been put in prison. You, you have nobody to train, nobody to talk to. So he goes back. He sits in his hotel for two or three days. He sulks and pouts, gets another email. Please come to our nation. We need you. No, I'm not coming. That's not on the itinerary. I'm going to go to this nation. So he goes, gets the airport, phone call. A missionary on the ground said, there's really no need to come. All of our church has been, been hit with this terrible disease and sickness. They can't come to any trainings. And matter of fact, we don't think it's safe for you to come. You may get this, so don't, please don't come right now. Maybe later. So on the drive back to the hotel, he says, God's doing something. And it hit him, the emails, for two months to go to this nation. So he goes, he, begrudgingly and a little humble pie later, he says, I'm going to come. So the Western doctors all said, I'll meet you at the airport. So he flies into this little country in Southeast Asia. 23 million unreached people in one people group. There are only two known Christians of the 23 million, and they don't live in the country. They live in other places. He shows up, and the doctor's standing there just like he said, and there's these five other men standing behind him, native of the country. So the missionary gets off and shakes his hand. He says, are these people with you? And the guy waiting on him said, no, they're not with me. They said they came to meet you. He said, well, I don't know anything about them. The doctor hand slips him a cell phone number on a piece of paper and says, we've been found out. Just separate right now. If you make it through and don't go to prison, call me. <laughs> Welcome to our country. <laughs> Fend for yourself. So he, he goes to the ticket counter to try to get a ticket immediately out of the country. And these five gentlemen come up behind him and they're tugging at him and they're talking in their language. He doesn't understand what they're saying. Finally, one of them speaks broken English and says, Jesus, we follow Jesus. He doesn't know whether it's a trap. Maybe it's the government and secret police. And so he, he kind of plays hard and they insist, you've got to come to us. We know Jesus. He thinks this is impossible, but he, said, he feels like I should go. So he goes, and they go to this little apartment. Listen, all five of them tell him they come from different places among that 23 million. They did not know one another. 
at the same time they began to be impressed that there had to be a better way to life than what they were living. They were all ready to give up on life. And while praying, they felt strongly. They received a message. Go and read this book. And what they all described was a blue-bound Bible. They didn't know what a Bible was. They went to the, they each separately, knew nothing of each other, totally different parts of the nation. Went to their local stores, bookstores, looking for a blue book. That's all they could tell them. We're just looking for the blue book. Nobody knew what they were talking about. But each one of them went to the religious section. Among the Qurans that were bound in green, they found a small, shoved-in-the-back blue book. Pulled it out. Took it home. Each of them separately read through that book five times and each time felt called to come to Jesus, the one spoken of in this book. And they committed to Christ on their own, reading the Bible by themselves and later found one another. They began to pray from 12 midnight till 3 every morning before they went to work. Send us someone to train us. The missionary stopped and said, when did you begin to pray? They said, Two months ago. He said, two months ago, the doctor that was there at the airport, yeah, we know him. We saw him. He started asking me to come to this country, and I resisted. They said, what took you so long to come? He spent weeks with them, training them how to live in their culture, raise up a church in their culture. My point is this, God's voice is calling the people that belong to him around the nations. And his voice finally will be his word. And the way his word comes is through his people. Someone must go and teach them and train them all the things Christ has told them told us we need a passion that burns for Christ's name to be in these nations we need a passion God is raising up a generation of people and we need a passion for them to go to them to pray for them to give that they may be found in our generation we don't want our brothers around the world to say what took you so long 